Little honeybees flying around, little green peas from the ground, buttermilk biscuits nice and brown. Bring it to Tennessee farm table, butter beans, peas, beets and chard, chickens running in the yard, catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop in black gang candy stripes. Look at them loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee Farm Table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that I created to spotlight the people of the state of Tennessee and our southeastern neighbors who produce, prepare, and preserve regional foods and agriculture. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine when she was only nine years old, and she is a big star now and has a new album called Family Wars, and we're just so proud of this young Tennessee talent. And this morning, I'm setting the table with mineral water. In this Encore episode, I visit with Bill Houston, who owns and operates Houston's Mineral Well in Newmarket, Tennessee. His grandfather dug this well after he had a dream, and it's been in continuous operation ever since 1931. And it's a true heartbeat of the community and a really interesting story. We also get to hear from our friend Fred Sossman today, and he shares some good news for the new year, the reopening of a beloved restaurant in his hometown, The Bean Barn in Greenville, Tennessee. Plus, I've got news of a Mardi Gras event with Pistol Creek Catch of the Day playing music, all to help fundraise for Smiles. And Smiles is an organization in Blank County with volunteer drivers to get seniors who don't drive to the doctor and grocery store and stuff like that. So I've got news about that coming up, and I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. Located right off the highway in East Tennessee, just a couple of miles before Jefferson City, in a historic little town called Newmarket, sits Houston's Mineral Well. Third generation Bill Houston and his wife Krista Reese, who is a gifted food writer, maintain this community treasure. And since 1931, people from near and far bring their gallon jugs to the well to fill them up themselves and then take them home. This well is on the honor system, and it is refreshing to see just how honest the loyalists to Houston's mineral well can be. Not only is this place a place for really great water, but you get to meet people that you might not ever meet otherwise, and sometimes you see an old friend. Bill Houston is also a very gifted, fine artist, 
primarily focused on Tennessee landscapes, and he also taught fine art to students at Carson Newman College for over 40 years, and he is a great friend to countless former students and anyone lucky enough to know him. So let's join Bill Houston right now and hear this really interesting story that he tells about how Houston's mineral well came to be. My grandfather, we're now in my grandfather's old store, which I converted into an apartment and a living quarters and an art studio back about 20 years ago. But uh, my grandfather used this as a general store, and it was also the bus station in Newmarket. And the front part of it was the bus station, and you'd come in and get a ticket and all that, and they had these all these chairs and a Coke machine and a big rack with laced potato chips and a big glass thing that had Tom's peanut log rolls in it. And uh, they put out a flag if they had somebody that wanted to go either to Asheville or to Knoxville. People would get a bus ticket and it was about, I think it ran 55 cents to go to Knoxville. And uh, that was a lot of money for some people. But uh, it was also kind of a, uh, the equivalent when I was a child of what a convenience store is now, in which they just had uh, immediate things that a person would want. And, but when my grandfather ran it up until probably the early 1950s, it was more like a country general store and they sold everything. And uh, this particular second floor where we're seated now there were books and magazines and there were uh, housewares and glasses and forks and spoons and dishes and plates and tablecloths and napkins and all it was all on these huge big tables that just went the length of the building they sold phonograph records they sold phonograph needles they sold shoes they sold everything and it was all here on this second floor that was all kind of closed down after my grandfather died he built this building in 1922 and he handmade all of the concrete blocks from a machine that he ordered from Sears Roebuck. And they would mix concrete by hand and put it in a mold and pull this big lever and it would squish it down to this mold and it would uh, the mold would then come apart and they would then slide them down and they could make about 10 or 12 concrete blocks a day. So he made all of these concrete blocks anticipating that he was gonna build this uh, building. He originally started out uh, as a telegrapher for the Southern Railways and he lived in Wataga and he came down here and he got a job with Southern Railways and he operated the telegraph and uh, sent uh, Western Union messages up and down the line and also would send info to the other um, uh, trains as to what was happening and all of that and uh, he got he was an incredibly bright guy and he made enough money that he invested into an open pit zinc mine and it was a big hit. And they used to have mules and guys with picks and shovels uh, mining zinc. And he and a, three or four other guys were in together and my grandfather saw the fact that it might play out and they might need to go underground and he didn't want to really have anything to do with that. And so he sold his part of the zinc mine and was able to invest the money in whatever it took to build this building. And so that's just kind of long stretched out kind of a uh, origin here. But in the 
late 1920s and early 1930s, he started having terrible kidney problems. And he went to a doctor, and in 1929, 30, there was very little that you could do with kidney problems. And there were some things. And they restricted his diet and all of this, and he was, uh, gave him laudanum to take for the pain, paragoric and laudanum. And he was in a lot of pain, and uh, they diagnosed it to be very, very severe and operable kidney stones. And they were just really, really agonizing. And uh, he thought he was going to die from them, and he probably would have. Uh, he had a dream one night, and in this dream, he said that he had a vision in which there was a voice, but his sister said that he saw an angel, and his son said that he just heard a voice. But uh, he had this incredibly profound and very uh, real dream, and the next morning, he put a stick in the ground and said, we have to drill a well to this depth of 252 feet here. And they all thought he was nuts. And uh, next thing you know, there's a well drilling crew here and they're setting up the thing and they're drilling. And uh, they hit water twice on the way down I think once at about 90 feet, another one at about 150 feet, but because it wasn't at 252 feet, which he was told in the dream, they poured concrete down into the uh, shaft around a pipe and then drilled through the center of the pipe again and kept going. And at 252 feet, they hit water. And it was crystal clear and it came out and like this, the neighbor said it sounded like a, a cannon going off. He said it was a a big whoomp sound, and uh, there was a, a pressure, and they started pumping the water, and it just, from the very first seconds, it was crystal clear. Generally, they would have to pump for days because it'd be full of sand and mud and all sorts of things. And so he started drinking the water. And in about six weeks, he went back to the doctor, and there was no sign of any of the kidney problems and he had dissolved and passed the kidney stones and he thought this was just a miracle and so he started giving this water away to anybody that wanted it and so uh, the rumor got around that it cured kidney problems and so he would uh, get empty glass bottles and fill it up and he would take it to people or get his son to take it to people they drink them feel better and so word got around and there was this uh, extraordinary guy named Lloyd Cunningham, who was an African-American guy that worked for my grandfather and worked as a stock um, uh, clerk in the store. And he would put, they had these incredibly high shelves and have to climb ladders and get cans down off of it and all that. And he would fill these uh, orders that people would have in cardboard boxes and stuff and they would take it to your house. They'd make deliveries. And it got to the point where there were so many people coming and wanting water, and he would have to go out and operate the pump that my grandfather couldn't use him in the, in the store anymore. And so he had to actually be out there pumping water all the time. And so even though Mr. Cunningham had a job working part-time on the Southern Railway uh, at the depot and working part-time for my grandfather, 
he made more money in a day from tips pumping water than he made in his salary job. So he quit his salary jobs and started doing that the whole time. Well, anyway, uh, word got around that it had these curative properties. And so my grandfather built a, again, a concrete block building, which still stands around the well and installed an electric pump and they could just shut it on and pump water and then shut it back off. And uh, it got to be very popular. And you are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. My guest today is Bill Houston, third generation Newmarket, Tennessee resident and third generation owner and operator of Houston's Mineral Well in Newmarket, Tennessee. After a short break from our sponsor, Century Harvest Farm Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee, we'll return with the second part of our interview. And after that, we'll hear from Fred Sossman about the reopening of the Bean Barn in Greenville, Tennessee. Support for the Tennessee Farm Table is brought to you in part by Century Harvest Farms and Century Harvest Farms Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee. A sustainable farm in East Tennessee producing 100% grass-fed beef and other wholesome farm products. Preservative-free grass-fed charcuterie, preserves, pickles, and jams. Also home to the community-serving, food-insecurity-fighting Century Harvest Farms Foundation. And always centuryharvest.org. Did you know that lots of seniors that live in our area have a monthly income of $800 a month? This makes getting to the doctor or the grocery store quite the challenge for many seniors in our community. And to help out, you are invited to attend an annual fundraiser which supports SMILES. SMILES is an entity within the Blount County Community Action Agency that provides non-driving seniors in Blount County with safe, reliable transportation by a dedicated group of volunteer drivers. And they are inviting you to the third annual Smiles for Mardi Gras fundraiser taking place Tuesday, February the 25th from 5 until 8 at the Green Meadows Country Club in Blount County, Tennessee. With live music from Pistol Creek Catch of the Day, dancing and a dance contest, Mardi Gras food, masks and beads, and a mayor's dance. This event is free to the public and donations are encouraged to help continue the service that SMILES provides. Put a link to this event in the show notes at TennesseeFarmTable.com and more information about this organization at BluntCAA.org. And you are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. My guest today is Bill Houston, third-generation Newmarket, Tennessee resident and third-generation owner and operator of Houston's Mineral Well in Newmarket, Tennessee. And uh, some men from Knoxville that ran a branch of the Rexall Drug Company came down here and tried to buy it. And he says it's not for sale. They kept pressing him. And he got the idea while they were talking to him that he could sell the water. Well, since he worked in the trade of, you know, whatever you would want to sell in a store, he was very good friends with the Coca-Cola man. And the Coca-Cola man told him, fountain syrup 
Coca-Cola that they used to make syrup fountain drugstore drinks, in which you'd have a couple of squirts of Coca-Cola and some carbonated water, you would uh, get that, and it came from this super concentrated Coca-Cola syrup. And when the bottles were empty, they were just thrown out. And my grandfather, being brilliant the way he was, got the idea that he would buy these empty Coca-Cola bottles, bring them back here. They were incredibly durable, beautiful bottles. And we'd bring them back here and he would fill them full of hydrochloric acid and burn the sugar out that was uh, deposits and residue inside and wash them out incredibly thoroughly, put a brand new cap on it and his own label. And it was Houston's mineral water. And he would advertise in newspapers all over the country that it cured certain diseases of which it would be kidney stones and gallstones and diabetes and arthritis and, and, and uh, uh, laziness and, and mental <laughs> lapses and all these different things. And there was this enormous list, dyspepsia, I remember was one of them. And, you know, uh, stomach problems, uh, ulcers of all different types, uh, indigestion, all sorts of things. And because he would have people that would come and get it and they would say, I've been having this problem all my life and I don't have it anymore. So there was no scientific evidence that this did anything. He, but he thought, well, of course it does that. You know, it's really great water. Mm-hmm. And so he would advertise. Well, my grandfather probably knew that the Federal Food and Drug uh, Act of 1917 uh, was in effect, but he ran afoul of it in 1945, and the government took him to federal court because he had claimed that this water cured these diseases. And there was a law written because of all of these people that sold just a bottle of water for you know snake oil, whatever, and it would cure different things. There was a law that said that water cannot be, cannot be advertised or claims made that it cures any kind of disease. And so they took him to court in Cincinnati. And he got a lawyer and he was up there and had a trial and he produced so many witnesses in the trial in the Cincinnati area that the judge threw out all the charges. He did not have to pay a fine or anything, but he was forbidden from that moment on to ever ever advertise that it was a benefit to your health. So he came up with a slogan, the most pleasant taste because the water tastes really good. In fact, I would say 99% of the people that come here get it just because of the way it tastes. They don't like chlorinated, heavily chemicaled water taste and they like it. It's, it's like rainwater. It's just kind of amazing. And so uh, he uh, was forbidden from making health claims after that particular uh, uh, session with the federal government. And because of that, the sales started to dwindle and people began to kind of not be too interested in it because, you know, they wanted to cure like, you know, I can get water, you know, and I don't care about what it tastes like. And until the 19, late, well, really early 1970s. And there was a great resurgence of interest in bottled water and mineral water and spring water and all sorts of things and it's like Perrier and all these others. Poland Spring, all these others just came on like you wouldn't believe. And so people started to come back 
and to get it. And it was completely by rumor and completely by word of mouth. And they would come and get water to drink just because they liked the way it tastes. And, uh, or as we say in Newmarket, tasties. And uh, it tasties good, which I've heard out there in the parking lot. So, and uh, so I, I use that a lot of times. Like, how is it? It's like, oh, it tastes good. <laughs> and uh, uh, my, when, after my grandfather died, my uncle ran it. And my uncle was not very ambitious and was uh, more interested in hunting and fishing and uh, watching ball games and, and having fun with his buddies and driving. Uh, 150 miles over to North Carolina to have country ham and driving 150 miles to come back and he was a he was a brilliant guy but had a a, a kind of an antisocial aspect about the way and he didn't like the general public but uh, he was not really interested in doing much with it and he was involved in a terrible accident back in the early 70s and then I started, uh, he never recovered from it. And uh, uh, he was just crippled. And uh, so I started running it. And so um, uh, he had to go into a nursing home. And uh, so I started running it and I kind of couldn't believe the number of people that were back there and wanting to get water. And so I started uh, trying to fix it up, trying to replace, the, the building was in really bad shape and trying to re replace the, the the actual plumbing and the, the, the pumping equipment and all of the stuff that was necessary to operate it. And it took a decade and a really a tremendous amount of effort. And uh, mm -hmm. so it's kind of in the state that it is now after I kind of realized that I had uh, two other occupations, uh, one working at Carson Newman University and then being a professional artist and needing the time to do that that I couldn't just sit over there like my uncle did and like my grandfather did sometimes. And so I figured out a way to make it run independently with not having anybody there all the time. And uh, one of the Tennessee tax people uh, that came to uh, review the place uh, couldn't believe that I still, since 1973, operated it on a on an honor system. And I'm the only continuously operating successful business in Tennessee that runs on the honor system. According to them. Now there might be a peach orchard or something, you know, which, you know, uh, you have a basket and you go pick your own peaches or something and you leave a dollar. Uh, but to, you know, having actual, uh, you know, to submit the uh, state taxes and, and uh, income taxes and all this kind of stuff from the business, uh, I was told by somebody once that I was the only successfully operating business in Tennessee that operated on the honor system. And there's no way to make change and there's a box that just comes out of the floor, it's quarter inch steel embedded <laughs> in concrete. And I've actually had people wrap a chain around it and, and go out to the parking lot and put it on their car and try to pull the box out of the floor and and they just sit there the tires just burning on the pavement and I've had other people over there try to cut the lock off and I've got it all figured out so they can't do that and uh, they were uh, I've had a lot of uh, 
uh, amateur, very amateur theft attempts. But uh, uh, they think that this box is just filled with money because it's about, it's about three and a half feet tall. And I think the money just goes all the way down to the floor and there's a chamber underneath it or whatever. But it's a little tiny thing like a half of a cigar box that's up on the top of it. And it, you know, it fills up with nickels and quarters and there's occasionally some bills in it. And I have people that uh, buy enormous quantities. I have one of uh, these brothers from Dayton, Ohio that drive down here every other month. And uh, they'll probably get about 350 gallons. And I've had people come from New Jersey and from Florida. And a lot of people come from Georgia. A lot of people from North Carolina. A lot of people from Eastern Kentucky. And, but the farthest distance that people come on a regular basis is Dayton, Ohio. And they come down and they get it for their family. And they have these big, huge containers with like, like Susie May written on the side or uh, Aunt Annie or like uh, 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 Kelly. And it's written on the side of these big blue plastic containers. And they will, I'll leave the place open for them at night and they stay open there over there very, very late. And then they'll go to Shoney's. And, uh, and they love All right. that. Oh, I'm calling time. Okay. The food is ready. So we should come eat. And you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. Thank you for tuning in. We have just heard an interview with Bill Houston, third generation New Market Tennessee resident and third generation owner and operator of Houston's Mineral Well in Newmarket, Tennessee. I've put a link to Houston's Mineral Well on my site with all the podcast notes at TennesseeFarmTable.com and they can also be found online at HoustonsMineralWater.com. Up next is a neat segment from our friend Fred Sossman in Johnson City about a historic restaurant which has reopened in Greenville, Tennessee. Folks say it seemed like the longest six months in the recent history of Greenville, Tennessee. For that agonizing period, a dish called Beans All the Way was no more. In late June of last year, Jerry and Donna Hartzell, owners of the Bean Barn since 1981, entered into a well-deserved retirement. For a while, it looked as if Beans All the Way, which had been served since the 1950s when the restaurant was called Brit's Grill, had reached its end. Beans All the Way is as much a symbol of Greenville, Tennessee as the Cannonball Church or the Old Town Gate. Romy and Zella Mae Britt started serving it when their employee, Reagan Walker, mixed some homemade beef stew into a bowl of large seasoned soup beans and topped it with chopped onions. It has been the centerpiece of the business ever since. From its era on Depot Street to its move into the old Stills Grocery Building on East Church. I've been eating there since my days at Greenville High School in the early 1970s. Then, students were allowed to leave the campus for lunch, and many of us packed cars and headed out for beans all the way. During my college years, when I worked the early morning shift on radio station WSMG, I'd often eat both breakfast and lunch with the Brits. On days when my classes at East Tennessee State University ended around lunchtime, 
I would hurry back to Greenville for a bowl of beans and a cheeseburger. When I began writing about food and the people behind it, the bean barn was one of my first subjects. I've spoken about the place all over the country, and in 2003, introduced the members of the Southern Foodways Alliance at the University of Mississippi to its glories. Britt's Grill and the Bean Barn had been in the same family, at least indirectly, for well over half a century. When Romy and Zella May retired, the business came into the hands of their son Danny and his wife Donna. In 1981, they sold it to Donna's brother, Jerry Hartzell, and his wife, also named Donna. At my high school class reunion back in August, I heard that the Bean Barn might be coming back. That rumor proved true. In late December, the business opened its doors once again, thanks to a visionary former customer, Gary Hosey, owner of Gary's Paint and Body Shop and a 1984 graduate of South Green High School, has resurrected the bean barn. The lights are brighter, the paint is new, and there's a shiny new stainless steel hood over the grill. But amid all the renovations and refurbishing, Gary had the good judgment to keep some things just as they were. He's still using the old grill, which imparts an unmatched flavor to those cheeseburgers. And most important of all, he has kept the menu pretty much like it always was. Beans All the Way is back, still flavored with that homemade beef stew, still dressed with those chopped onions, and still accompanied by a square of cornbread or a stack of light bread. We stopped in the other day on the way to Nashville, but we almost didn't, thinking the place just might not be the same. We had gotten pretty far down 11E before we decided to give it a try. Any doubt we had was eliminated once we saw the parking lot. So full, we had to find a place down the street, in the lot where an old dress factory once operated. We claimed a couple of counter stools like we always did. When I saw the wife of a local football coach, an attorney on his lunch break, and two uniformed guys from the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency, I felt the same sense of community that has defined the place for generations. The Bean Barn's role in building community had been restored. It's an egalitarian place, one that draws folks from a fascinating blend of backgrounds and professions. They seek not only nourishment, but also connection. There's talk of Little League records and the health of grandparents, of property tax deadlines and upcoming weddings. When that bowl of beans all the way was placed on the counter, and I was able to order a glass of buttermilk to go with it like I always have, I knew the bean barn had not just been reopened, it had been revived. For the Tennessee Farm Table in Greenville, Tennessee, I'm Fred Saussman. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. 
Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production. And you are listening to East Tennessee's own 899 WDVX, and it is time for Sweetgrass. <laughs>